Joe Biden vows to to free hundreds of thousands of prisoners. The Epstein allegations blow back on both Bill Clinton and the Trump administration, and President Trump's poll numbers actually rise. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Oh, man, we have a lot to get to today. Mr. Beto, he's back on the road, and now he says that all of America is evil and racist, which is why a white man like Beto O'Rourke should be president of the United States. Very important. We'll also get to Megan Rapino, who is making the rounds as the new woke voice of the left. And she is very, very important because she kicks a soccer ball and because she kicks a soccer ball very well. And this means that she knows all there is to know about politics and also about media and also about everything. She's like Colin Kaepernick, except more inspiring. We'll get to more of that a little bit later on in the show. We begin at this hour with Joe Biden really blowing up his candidacy. It's amazing to watch. If you look at the polls right now, Joe Biden continues to maintain a fairly solid lead in the actual primary polling. So right now, if you look at that real clear politics poll average, which is the only one that really matters at this point because it's so early, Joe Biden is leading the rest of the field by an average of about 12 points. That would be the last 10 polls. There's an Economist YouGov poll that came out yesterday, and that showed him up only four points over Elizabeth Warren. But there was an Emerson poll that came out the day before and showed him up 15 points over Elizabeth Warren and the rest of the field. That Economist YouGov poll had the race currently at Joe Biden 22, Elizabeth Warren 18, Kamala Harris 15, and Bernie Sanders 12. It's pretty obvious that Bernie Sanders is starting to feel the effects of Elizabeth Warren on his flank, and he is starting to drop voters to her. Well, Joe Biden, instead of strongly campaigning toward the middle and maintaining his brand and basically saying, come get me, guys. Right? Come over here and get me. We're 40% of the bases. Come over here and find me. Instead, he is swiveling into what the rest of the Democratic Party wants from him. So he is swiveling toward the quote-unquote majority of the Democratic base. Now, it is true that only a plurality of the Democratic base is quote-unquote moderate. It's true that a majority of the Democratic base is probably what we would call progressive, maybe even radical. But that progressive base is going to splinter. There's not one candidate for them to rally around. And in fact, the moderate candidate in the last few Democratic presidential cycles has actually seemed to do better in the primaries than the person who is perceived as more radical. That was true in 2004 with John Kerry. It wasn't true in 2008 with Barack Obama, but that's because Barack Obama followed the most simple rule of American politics, run against Hillary Clinton. That is the number one rule of American politics. If you run against Hillary Clinton in anything but a New York Senate race, you will win. That is the rule. So 2008 was an example that that did not fall toward moderation. But obviously, by 2016, Hillary Clinton was perceived as moderate against Bernie Sanders, and she ended up winning the nomination on those grounds. Well, Joe Biden has a strategy. His strategy is to embrace his record and say, yes, it turns out that I am kind of moderate. It turns out that, well, I do want to see change happen. I don't think that America is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad place. And that was his opening ad. I know it feels like it's been years, but it's only been two and a half, three months since Joe Biden jumped into the race with an ad that he launched by talking about the historic greatness of America, not about the historic evil of America. And then he is very quickly shifted over to his left in an attempt to crowd out the rest of the field. Instead, he has been sucked into the rest of the field. I think he was seeing this this race as sort of an Indy 500. He was going to swivel out toward the far lanes, drive everybody into the wall. Instead, what has happened is he drove himself directly into a car crash, and now he is involved in that car crash. And he keeps getting more and more radical in his commentary, and it ain't going to help him. So let's give an example. Yesterday, Joe Biden, there's tape of him, I guess this happened on Sunday. Joe Biden 
was asked about cutting prison populations in the United States. Now, Joe Biden was responsible for a crime bill in 1994. He was a co-signer of it, co-sponsor of it in 1994. That was dramatically helpful in decreasing the crime rates around the United States. I know that we like to forget history conveniently. The fact is, between 1960 and 1994, we had one of the greatest surges in crime in the history of the United States, probably the greatest surge in crime, violent crime, in the history of the United States. Murder rates were at extraordinary highs in most of America's major cities. They had risen dramatically across the country. And in 1994, the federal government decided that they were going to crack down on a fair number of crimes and provide new resources for policing to states and localities. And the crime rate began a historic reversal, unprecedented reversal. The crime rates began to drop in 1994. They continued to drop all the way until the Ferguson effect reversed them in 2014, 2015, 2016. And so that was a good thing. But Joe Biden is now being forced to run away from his quote unquote moderate record. He is now being forced to run on the progressive record. And that progressive record is supposed to be well, let's free all the prisoners. Let's let everybody out of prison. Well, the, the nice thing about saying let's let everybody out of prison is that you never actually have to deal with what happens when bunches of people are let out of prison. You get to pose yourself as some sort of human rights activist while allowing criminals to wander free on the streets. We've seen this in the state of California. Jerry Brown, the former governor in the state of California, he participated in something called prison realignment. Instead of providing new funding, that was necessary to keep prisoners in prison. He lowered sentences. He reclassified felonies as misdemeanors. And the violent crime rate has gone up in the state of California, at least in its major cities. I live in Los Angeles. The quality of life has gone down dramatically with regard to everything from street crime to violent crime as well and drug crime, too. All of this is a serious problem, but we're supposed to ignore it because we falsify the stats. It is very easy for Aside from murder, it's very easy to falsify statistics when it comes to crime statistics because police departments will be told by mayors that they need to simply reclassify crimes in different ways and report them differently in order to artificially lower the crime rates. But you can tell in terms of quality of life that California has had a rough time since prison realignment. We're going to get to what Joe Biden had to say in just one second. It is fully insane because this is where he thinks the Democratic Party is. It's like kind of Donald Trump back in 2016 speaking conservatism as a second language. Donald Trump has turned out to govern pretty conservatively. He doesn't know much about conservatism. And in 2016, Trump did this routine where he would sort of estimate where he thought conservatives lay. And so when it came to abortion, for example, he would say, sure, let's prosecute. Let's prosecute women for abortions. That is not the position of anyone in the pro-life movement, nor has it been for decades. But because Trump isn't familiar with the pro-life movement, he sort of threw out what he thought they wanted to hear. Now you got Joe Biden doing the same thing with the woke brigade. Well, now he is going to try and pander to people who are woke by throwing out solutions that make no sense at all. We'll get to that in a second. First, it's a hell of a lot easier listening to pundits duke it out over the latest Washington whatever than to take a good hard look at your own finances. I know a lot of folks have gotten stuck in serious credit card debt because they haven't been looking at their own finances. And this is why you ought to be responsible. How can you do that? Well, head over to Lending Club. With Lending Club, you can consolidate your debt or pay off your credit cards with one fixed monthly payment. Since 2007, Lending Club has helped millions of people regain control of their finances with affordable fixed-rate personal loans. No trips to a bank, no high-interest credit cards. Just go to LendingClub.com. You can tell them about yourself, how much you want to borrow. Pick the terms that are right for you. If you are approved, your loan is automatically deposited into your bank account in as little as a few days. Lending Club is the number one peer-to-peer lending platform with over $35 billion in loans issued. Go to LendingClub.com slash Ben. Check that rate in minutes. Borrow up to $40,000. That is LendingClub.com slash Ben lendingclub.com slash Ben. All loans made by WebBank member FDIC equal housing lender. No reason for you to get caught up in those 25%, 30% credit card interest rates. Instead, go refi with lendingclub.com slash Ben. 
LendingClub.com slash Ben. You check your rate, borrow up to 40 grand. LendingClub.com slash Ben. All loans made by WebBank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Okay, so Joe Biden is now out there proclaiming that he wants to free hundreds of thousands of prisoners. Now, this may be popular with folks on the left. It has never been popular in American politics to say that you actually want to free hundreds of thousands of prisoners, including violent criminals. This has never been popular. Rudy Giuliani became mayor of New York. New York, as far left a city as it is possible to have in the United States. Rudy Giuliani became a very popular mayor of New York, specifically on the basis of quality of life issues and crime. In Los Angeles, Mayor Richard Reardon did something very similar. Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger was basically elected, not just because of the Enron energy crisis out here in Los Angeles and in California, but also because of issues with quality of life. If you want a Republican elected in a country that is shifting to the left, all you have to do is point to quality of life. George H.W. Bush in 1988 may have won the election based on the perception that Michael Dukakis was soft on crime. So I know that we are now living off the boon, off the bounty of a 25-year, yeah, 25-year drop in crime rates. I understand all of that. But that doesn't mean that the American people are willing to see a reversal of the crime rates based on violent criminals being released from prison. Why am I making a big deal out of this? Because it's not getting any attention at all. I'm shocked by this. I mean, here's Joe Biden saying he, he, this is an insane vow. Here's Joe Biden vowing to cut the prison population in the United States by more than 50%, 5-0%. The ACLU has a roadmap for cutting incarceration by 50% through reforms that have been endorsed by both the right and the left, including four other presidential candidates. And many conservatives. Let me show do you, you commit to cutting incarceration by 50% if elected? We can do it more than that. We, there, there should be no... Uh, look, get, again, get his name. I'll send you exactly what my program is. Is it a yes, or, is it a yes, yes or, no? or no? Yeah, the answer is gonna, yes. Thank you. But I got a better plan than you guys have. Okay, the answer, the answer is yes, of course. I'm going to reduce prison populations by more than 50%. Now, there's a lot of talk in the United States about mass incarceration. The reason people talk about mass incarceration on the left particularly is because a disproportionate number of people in prison, disproportionate to the population statistics, are of minority descent, right, are black and Hispanic. And this is supposedly a reference to America's deep-seated criminal justice racism. Well, the reality is that, unfortunately, a disproportionate number of black and Hispanic people in the United States are committing crimes as a percentage of the population generally. And that is true from in everything from murder statistics to violent crime. There are certain crimes where it's disproportionately white. Like crystal meth is a disproportionately white crime. People who are arrested for crystal meth distribution are disproportionately white. There are certain types of white-collar crime that are disproportionately white. Okay, but when you're talking about violent crime, if you're talking about Murder, for example, the, the people who are committing murder are disproportionately of minority races. Now, that is not a referendum. That is not a statement about race innately being linked to crime. It is just pointing out that if you are arresting a disproportionate number of people from a population group, that is not necessarily a reference to the racism of the system. That may be a reference to the people who are actually committing the crimes. That's not the fault of the police. That's not the fault of the criminal justice system. So the, the, and that's the entire basis of the let's free hundreds of thousands of people from prison argument is that the system is inherently racist and therefore we need to let hundreds of thousands of people out and we're going to reduce prison populations by 50%. So let's look at what the prison populations of the United States actually look like in terms of the crimes that they have committed. Because I don't care about the race of people in prison. I don't care about the race of people in any industry. I don't care about the race of people in the United States generally. I'm not interested in the racial demographics of the United States. I care much more about what people think and what people do because I thought we were supposed to not care about people's race because that's called racism. 
So instead, let's focus on what people have done to get themselves in prison. Now, we can all agree, if somebody is innocent and in prison, they should not be in prison. Right? We all agree on that. So the question now is, which guilty criminals should we allow to go free? Because that's what Joe Biden's talking about. He's not suggesting that lots of innocent people are in prison. He is suggesting that a lot of people who have been convicted of actual crimes ought to go free. And he says more than 50% should be released. So let's look at the actual percentages of people who are in prison. So first of all, the vast majority of people in prison, and by the vast majority, I mean 13 out of every 15 people who are in prison are in state prisons, not federal penitentiaries. And most crimes that are committed in the United States are state-level crimes. And most of those crimes happen to be violent crimes. Contrary to popular opinion, the vast majority of crimes for which people are in jail are not people who are, pick, who are picked up for smoking dope on the street. That is simply not correct. When you look at the state prisons, okay, this is information from the Prison Policy Initiative, which is a fairly left-wing group on prison policy. They have a solid breakdown here. If you're watching the show, then you can see this particular chart. This is why you should subscribe. State prisons currently hold about 1.3 million people. 712,000 of those people are in prison for violent crimes. 137,000 for assault, 172,000 for robbery, 163,000 for rape or sexual assault, 18,000 for manslaughter, 179,000 for murder. Okay, so that means the single largest plurality of people who are in prison for violent crime are in for murder. So that's a lot of people who ought to be in prison. It seems to me if you commit an assault, a robbery, a rape or sexual assault, manslaughter or murder, there's a very solid case that you should be in prison. And that represents over half of the people who are in state prisons. Then there are another 235,000 people who are in state prison for a property crime. And that would be fraud, burglary, theft, car theft, other property. That's, that's a large share of folks. Okay, about 200,000 people are in prison for drug, for drug possession, for, for, for drug crimes. The vast majority of those people are not in for drug possession. First of all, most of the time when people are in prison for drug possession, it is because they pled down from drug trafficking. It's because a drug dealer was picked up and then cut a plea deal in which they pled guilty to speed up the system and they went to jail for drug possession, which is a lower sentence. They had their sentence degraded. I worked in a prosecutor's office for a summer. This is how it works. And the vast majority of those people, even the ones who plead guilty to drug possession, are not actually going to jail for drug possession. It is a pled down offense. Other drug crimes represent the vast majority, as in 75% of all the people who are in state prison for drug crimes. And then you have 151,000 people who are in jail on the basis of, of what they call public order offenses, which is, for example, weapons possession, possession of illegal weapons, or driving under the influence. So which of those people do you feel like ought to be released? According to Joe Biden, half those people ought to be released. Where is that going to come from? And since over half of those people are in prison for violent crimes, that means that if you were to release everyone who is not in prison for a violent crime on the state level, everyone, that would still only represent about 40% of the people who are in state prison. So you still have to have another 10% coming from somewhere. That means you would have to release about 118,000, by this chart, 118,000 violent criminals onto the streets of the United States. You think it's going to make America a better place or a worse place to have violent criminals walking around? Okay, so let's even assume that we're talking about federal prisons and jails. So if you look at federal prisons and jails, what you see is that contrary, again, to popular opinion, the majority of people who are in federal prison are in federal prison for non-drug offenses. Okay, 75,000 people, 76,000 people, according to the Bureau of Prisons, are in prison for drug offenses. That represents about 45% of the total number of people in the federal pen for drug offenses. Again, the vast majority of those people are not in for drug possession. The vast majority of those people are in for drug trafficking, meaning you have a drug dealer on the street who is dealing to kids. Right, somebody who is, who is importing co cocaine 
into an inner city and then dealing crack to school kids or something. Drug trafficking is a serious crime. Now, if you want to make the case that we ought to legalize drugs in the United States, you'll make the full libertarian case. That's a case I'm willing to hear. But if the case that you are making is that there's going to be no negative impact to releasing drug traffickers back onto the streets of the United States, let's hear that case, gang. I, I can... I can see the costs and the benefits of this particular case, but I'm, I'm not feeling that people are making honest arguments about this sort of stuff. There will be costs to releasing drug traffickers back onto the streets. Those people are not generally going to go get a job at the local Walgreens. Many of those people are going to go right back to crime. The recidivism rate in the United States is extraordinarily high. The recidivism rate in, for many crimes in the United States is upward of 75 or 80%. Take, for example, California. According to a 2012 report by the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, more than 65% of people released from California's prison system are back in prison within three years. According to the National Statistics on Recidivism, this is the, the National Institute of Justice reporting, 60% of arrests occurred during, four, uh, during the years four through nine. An estimated 68% of all released prisoners were arrested within three years, 79% within six years, 83% within nine years. Okay, those recidivism rates are incredibly, incredibly high. So let's not pretend that these folks are going to go back to living a life of crime-free existence. The vast majority of them won't. Some of them will. Some of them will. If we could pick and choose which ones would, then there's a case for early release for those people. But if you're just talking about blanket release of an enormous number of people, like Joe Biden is apparently talking about, releasing half the prison population, well, good luck with all of that. Good luck with all that. But again, this is not directed toward anything remotely like a policy that is workable. Joe Biden wouldn't do any of this as president. This is exactly like when Kamala Harris was ripping into Joe Biden over supposedly not backing forced busing. And then she was asked, so do, do you support forced busing? And she's like, no, not really. And I, people should use it as a tool, but I'm not really, not really going to, to impose forced busing from above. In other words, right now, the Democratic Party primary is a bunch of virtue signaling. And if people take that virtue signaling as an actual platform, they're going to be scared to death, which is the reason that the polls for President Trump have been rising consistently in the general election numbers. So there's a very good poll out for President Trump yesterday from Emerson, and it showed a bunch of head-to-heads with Democrats. Now, in most of the head-to-heads prior to this, Trump had been in a little bit of trouble against most of the Democrats, although there is a trend. Okay, the trend is that Trump is basically even with all the Democrats except for Biden. That is from the two last polls. So there was an ABC News Washington Post poll that came out on Sunday. And here's what it showed. It showed Biden 53, Trump 43. That one's the outlier, right? And that is because Biden is widely known. He is perceived as a moderate. The further left he moves, the worse it is for him. He's making himself vulnerable with this sort of stupidity. Okay, but running against Kamala Harris, Trump is basically in a dead heat. It's Harris 48, Trump 46, according to... ABC News, Washington Post. It is Sanders 49, Trump 48. According to ABC News, Washington Post, Warren and Trump tied at 48. Buttigieg and Trump tied at 47, according to the ABC News, Washington Post poll from Sunday. And then those results are mirrored in the Emerson poll. So according to the Emerson poll, Biden is up six. He's the only one with a clear lead on Trump right now. Trump actually beats Kamala Harris by two, according to that poll. He is is behind by two to Bernie Sanders, 51-49. He's at 51 against Warren and 51 against Buttigieg. In other words, he's hitting numbers that he actually would need to hit in order to retain the presidency. This is because the more people see of the Democrats, the more it's a referendum on their radicalism. Having Joe Biden out there proclaiming to the sky that he is going to release hundreds of thousands of prisoners onto America's streets, 
Honestly, if Trump doesn't run on that, I don't know what he's doing. And I, I have a feeling that Trump is certainly going to run on the Democrats being extraordinarily weak on crime. Everything from their, their willingness to, to dump hundreds of thousands of prisoners into the American population to decriminalizing illegal immigration, which is something they continue to push to do. There's something else that's been happening I'm going to talk about in, in just a minute. And that is this, this push from the social left to get corporations to do their bidding as well. What we are, we, we are experiencing right now is not merely a political polarization. It is a cultural polarization that is leading to a breakup in, in the country. And I'm not talking about like full-scale secession, but I'm talking about an increasing feeling that we ought not live in the same country that is burgeoning on the left and then in response on the right. It's really bad. I'm going to explain in just one second. First, we live in a world where we have access to data that gives us more personal insights into who we are. What's more personalized than your DNA? Now we can turn to our genetics for personalized health, traits, and more. 23andMe, that's the name of this service. It allows you to go beyond ancestry to access more personalized insights about you based on your DNA. I've taken the 23andMe test. Turns out I'm 100% Ashkenaz Jew. 100% pure Ashkenaz Jew. I mean, that's, I don't even know how to describe that except to say that Ashkenaz Jews are famous for a couple of things. Not great food and genetically Tay-Sachs. So, so be that what it may <laughs> That's, that is what I found out from 23andMe. I also found out about my muscle composition, how caffeine affects me, all sorts of good stuff. 23andMe can reveal more about your sleep with their deep sleep report. If you've always suspected that you feel more sleepy than others after missing out on a night of sleep, it might not be that you're imagining things. Your genes may actually be involved. Check out their alcohol flush reaction report. Does alcohol turn your cheeks as pink as a glass of rosé? You may have alcohol flush reaction, which would be good to know if you're in like a business setting. Learn about the genetic factors you may have that make it harder to process alcohol. See what your genes can say about your health, traits, and more. Buy your health and ancestry service kit today at 23andMe.com slash Shapiro. That's the number 23andMe.com slash Shapiro. Again, 23andMe.com slash Shapiro and give them a try. Alrighty, so as I say, the culture seems to be coming apart. So it is not merely that politicians are polarizing because it's primary season and now they have to appeal to the most radical among us. Now there's pressure that is being put on private industries to do the same. You've seen this with Nike going woke in order not to go broke. And this is Nike's new strategy is that they are going to be as woke as humanly possible. They're going to embrace Colin Kaepernick. They're going to suggest that women are somehow put down in American society. Well, now SunTrust, a bank, has decided that they are not going to be involved in the private prison industry. According to Forbes.com, SunTrust Bank announced this morning they are ready to join other major banks in moving away from the private prison industry in the wake of deep public sentiment against their role in mass incarceration and family detention. Sue Malino, chief communications officer of SunTrust Bank, said, quote, following an ongoing and deliberate process, SunTrust has decided not to provide future financing to companies that manage private prisons and immigration holding facilities. This decision was made after extensive consideration of the views of our stakeholders on this deeply complex issue. In other words, a bunch of people whined and suggested it was very bad to fund private prison complexes that are necessary for keeping prisoners there. That it would be very bad to have private detention facilities that allow for, you know, more humane detention of illegal immigrants in the United States. And so SunTrust is pulling out. And we're seeing this from other banks as well. We've seen Bank of America direct action against particular groups that it does not like. And while you or I may agree on the groups that they don't like, it is very bad policy to have banks rejecting groups, not based on illegal activity of the groups, but based on viewpoint discrimination. It's very bad for the country. Now they can do what they want. They're a private industry. But the predictable result will be that there will be alternative banks that spring up to lend to a lot of these sorts of industries. And so what you will end up with 
is banks that do not politically discriminate and banks that do politically discriminate. And this is happening in virtually every area of corporate America. What what the left has realized for a while is that if they pressure corporations to do something, corporations will likely do it. That the squeakiest wheel tends to get the grease. Most of us don't really think about the corporate messaging of the products that we buy. We just go and look for the best products. This is particularly true for conservatives. We basically go and we look for the best products and we buy them. Like, I didn't care about Nike's politics until the last five minutes because why would I care about that? I need a shoe. But there are a lot of people on the left who do not feel the same way. And they actually look to corporations to mirror their social justice preferences. So if you are a corporation and you feel no blowback from the right when you go woke, but you feel lots of blowback from the left when you do not go woke, you're likely to cater to the left. Well, eventually the right is going to get wise to this and they're going to stop buying Nike shoes. They're they're going to stop banking with institutions that they don't like. Or alternatively, they will be expelled from those institutions because the only thing a lot of the left wants is to ban all of this stuff from entering the public square at all. They want to use the corporations as their tools. They want the corporations to do their dirty work for them. That will lead to an alternative market, a resegregation of the political market. It's sort of like how this happened in news, right? You've seen the Daily Wire spring up on the right, and then you've got Huffington Post on the left. You're going to see this happen with non-informational driven exchanges. You're going to see this happen with bigger corporations. That's actually very bad for the country. You're seeing this happen right now with regard to with regard to Home Depot. Home Depot is being boycotted. And a lot of this is just based on bad information. It's based on bad policy. It's based on media coverage that is not true. We'll get to that in just one second. First, be an adult. And being an adult means that you sometimes have to think about and do things that you really don't feel like doing, like those red-eye flights or working late, visiting your in-laws, getting life insurance. Another part of adulthood is learning to delegate what you hate. While you can't delegate that visit to the in-laws, you can certainly delegate life insurance shopping. Policy Genius, it's the easy way to shop for life insurance online. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers and find your best price. It's super important to have life insurance, guys. I understand that you don't want to think about your own death, but once you've gotten this taken care of, you don't have to think about it anymore. Now you just know that your family is covered in case, God forbid, something happens. Over at Policy Genius, once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and the red tape. That means no sales pressure, no hidden fees, just financial protection and peace of mind. Policy Genius doesn't just do life insurance. They can also help you find the right home insurance, auto insurance, disability insurance. So if you need life insurance, but you don't want to deal with all that legwork, head on over to policygenius.com. That's the easy way to compare all the top insurers, find the best value for you. That's Policy Genius. Delegate what you hate, especially if what you really hate is getting life insurance. Get it taken care of right now. That's policygenius.com. So as I say, the pressure on these banks to divest from the prison, in the so-called prison industrial complex is coming from the left. Ash Scow, writing for Daily Wire yesterday, points out that during the first round of Democratic presidential debates, Senator Elizabeth Warren slammed private prisons and called for their elimination. She said, our criminal and immigration systems are tearing apart communities of color and devastating the poor, including children. Okay, first of all, arresting criminals and taking them out of communities is one of the things that makes it easier to live in a community. And if you don't, uh, this weird idea that all these guys who are going to prison for crimes are actually responsible fathers and wonderful family figures. And then they just sort of get randomly plucked up and put in prison. I'm not seeing a lot of evidence of this. In any case, she claimed that the the economy is benefiting a thinner and thinner slice at the top. And she noted people who want to invest in private prisons. But this is not true. Private prisons under President Trump have not actually been doing very well. Core Civic which was formerly Corrections Corporation of America, is down about 25% since Trump's inauguration. GEO Group is down about 20%. Bank of America and SunTrust have have also announced they would stop financing for-profit prisons. 
There is basically no evidence to suggest that the private prison complex is doing great under President Trump and is benefiting from all of these crime policies or any of that. But again, bad information is more important than true information so long as the bad information gets broader play. You're seeing the same thing today with regard to a boycott, a so-called boycott of Home Depot. Now, it is important to note, the vast majority of people who say they're going to boycott these companies on the left never do any of this stuff. And how many of the people who say they're going to boycott Home Depot actually shop at Home Depot? The answer, probably none. How many of the people who say they're going to blow back on SunTrust actually bank at SunTrust? I would bet very, very, very few. The truth is that boycotts have a long failed history in the United States. It is very rare to see a successful boycott. The Montgomery bus boycott is one good example of a successful boycott. But it is exorbitantly rare today, particularly, for a boycott to actually hurt a company. All you have to do is look at Nike. A lot of conservatives fulminating over Nike and Colin Kaepernick. Their stock has been up since the beginning of the year dramatically. Nike knows that. That's why they're smart enough to ignore the detractors and just do what they want to do and pander to the people they want to pander to on the left. Well, apparently most corporations are not that smart. Nonetheless, people are targeting Home Depot. Why? Well, because one of its founders, Bernie Marcus, has said that he intends to support President Trump's re-election campaign. And this means that a bunch of people say that they are not going to actually shop at Home Depot anymore. Well, this is really stupid because Bernie Marcus retired from Home Depot 15 years ago and doesn't speak on behalf of the company. The company doesn't endorse presidential candidates. So he still continues to own shares in the business, but he is not speaking on behalf of Home Depot. This is just as dumb as the boycott of Chick-fil-A based on the political preferences of the owners of Chick-fil-A. Now, Chick-fil-A caters to customers of every, every name, every kind, every sexual orientation. Apparently, none of that matters. All this is doing is polarizing our culture. And when we continue in just a second, I'm going to show you how even the most anodyne, silly topics like women's soccer have become incredibly polarized and polarized by, frankly, celebrity figures who don't know what the hell they're talking about. Megan Rapino would be today's key example of a celebrity figure who does not know what the hell she is talking about, contradicts herself all over the place and is feeded by the media for her trouble because she obviously checks some intersectional boxes. Okay, first, when you work as much as I do, sleep is vital. I don't tend to get enough of it. And I'm not alone. Did you know more than one in three U.S. adults does not get enough sleep? If you're not sleeping enough, it can affect your cognitive function during the day. Learning, problem solving, decision making. That's why we have partnered with Calm, the number one app for sleep. Sleep deficiency does serious damage, not just to your brain, but to your body as well. The sleep lists are most, more prone to accidents, weight gain, depression. With Calm, you'll discover a whole library of programs designed to help you get the sleep your brain and body needs. They have soundscapes, over 100 sleep stories narrated by soothing voices like Jerome Flynn from Game of Thrones and Stephen Fry. So if you want to seize the day, you got to sleep the night with the help of Calm. I use Calm myself. When I can't fall asleep, I just put on the app and I am out like a light. Right now, Ben Shapiro listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash Ben. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash Ben. 40 million people have downloaded Calm already. There is a reason. Check them out at calm.com slash Ben. By the way, they also have Great solutions for your kids not being able to fall asleep. Go check them out at calm.com slash Ben. In just a second, we're going to get to Megan Rapino's astonishing interview on Anderson Cooper last night. First, you're going to have to go subscribe over at dailywire.com. $9.99 a month. Get to a subscription to dailywire.com. But more importantly, we have something very cool for you over at dailywire.com in the very near future. And also, you'll be able to download it from our, from our app and everything. This month marks the 50th anniversary since we first put a man on the moon. And we have a brand new, exciting podcast called Apollo 11, What We Saw. The host is Bill Whittle. He's an author, pilot, space enthusiast. He knows more about NASA than any person I've ever met. He takes you on the journey of what it took to get to the moon and what happened when we got there. 
and how things almost went horribly, horribly wrong, head over to Apple Podcasts right now or wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe today to Apollo 11, What We Saw. Again, it's called Apollo 11, What We Saw. It is the entire story of Apollo 11, the mission that put a man on the moon. It is super cool. I mean, it is just terrific. And also, you're going to want to follow us over at YouTube because the visuals on this thing are really astonishing. I mean, we did some amazing work on the visuals for Apollo 11, what we saw. But if you're just a listener, then go subscribe over at Apple Podcasts to Apollo 11, what we saw. You just search in the search bar for it. It'll pop right up. Hit subscribe. And then as soon as the episodes start arriving, I promise you, it's addictive. It is so good. I've listened to some of it. It's amazing. Check it out. Apollo 11, what we saw. Okay. Also, go subscribe to our website over at dailywire.com, $9.99 a month or 99 bucks a year for the annual with the annual. You get, among other things, this, the very greatest in beverage vessels. The leftist tears, hot or cold tumbler. You've heard me talk about it before, but you've not experienced the joy yourself until you actually grasp it in your paw. Go check it out right now at leftist tears, leftist tears, hot or cold tumbler, dailywire.com. We are the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. So talking about cultural polarization, you know, it's funny. The, the moments that are supposed to be unifying for the country are no longer unifying for the country. So the Women's World Cup team wins the World Cup. And as I've said, I don't care about this other than I like America. I'll root for America, whether we are winning in curling or whether we are winning in, women, winning in badminton or women's soccer. I really don't care. I have no particular love for soccer generally. I certainly have no particular love for women's soccer mainly because I care about skill level and women's soccer is just not at the same skill level as men's soccer. I mean, really not even as teenage boys soccer in many cases. In any case, this has become a big deal. That's fine. That's fine. But what made it political is that many on the U.S. women's national team decided that they were now going to be social justice heroes. And this meant that they were going to stump for so-called equal pay. Now, as we've talked about on the program, this is a bunch of crap. Women do not deserve equal pay in the World Cup with the men. They do not earn as much money. They do not sell as many tickets. That is simply a fact. When it comes to the U.S. soccer, U.S. national soccer, you know, like on in non-World Cup years, then... There's maybe a case that women should be paid more, but guess what? They have collective bargaining rights and they collectively bargained for a contract two years ago. So if they did a bad job negotiating, that would be on them. Also, it is true, they don't sell as many tickets overall as the men, particularly when you include World Cup years. When you include World Cup years, men dramatically outsell the women, like by $10 million. Okay, so all of this has been a bunch of nonsense. Even the the sort of more left-wing publications, the Washington Post, the New York Times that have been calling for quote-unquote equal pay recognize that women have not actually earned equal pay on the World Cup stage, but they just want it anyway. So this has been their thing. The lead voice in this has been Megan Rapino. Now, Megan Rapino has basically been since 2016 doing the Colin Kaepernick routine, getting famous off the, off the radical left social justice stuff that she has been pushing. And that's the reason why she's really being celebrated today. Not because she's a terrific soccer player, which she apparently is, but because she is a, an outspoken lesbian, because she is a very outspoken SJW on so-called equal pay issues, even though, again, she's not really stumping for equal pay. She's stumping for disproportionate pay for women on the basis of media coverage, effectively. And she has become this sort of obnoxious advocate for her position. The reason I call it obnoxious is because, I'm sorry, but if you go to University of Portland on scholarship for women's soccer and then you're whining about this country, shut up. Hey, really, this is a pretty great country when you get to go to college for free because not only do you kick a ball, you kick a ball in a sport people pretend to care about once every four years. Like, when I say shut up, by the way, I don't mean that she should be made to be quiet. She can talk as much as she wants. I'm just saying it's obnoxious because guess what? It is obnoxious. When she's kneeling for the national anthem, in a country that is celebrating her as a heroine. She get, she's getting paid millions of dollars 
to make ads for Nike about how she is a lesbian and outspoken and a soccer player. It seems to me you should be sort of grateful for the country that makes all that possible. It seems to me you should be pretty happy about the country, not sitting back and talking about how terrible the country is all the time. More than that, Rapino demonstrates an obvious unwillingness to even talk with anybody on the other side of the aisle. Now, before people say, well, why would she talk with you? You're criticizing her. Right. I'm criticizing her specifically because she has evidenced no desire to have a conversation of any merit or substance on these issues. Instead, she appears on media outlets that drool over her and ask her silly, stupid questions and allow her to get away with silly, stupid answers. So I want to give you a couple of examples of how Megan Rapino is being treated and how she says dumb things on a regular basis. And nobody calls her out on it because, again, her intersectional credentials are in order because even though she grew up, from what I understand, middle to upper class, right? I mean, she's playing soccer from the time she was five years old. She went to, I believe, a private high school. I'm not sure she went to... I know that she was playing on the on the junior soccer circuit and all of this. She's lived a pretty good life in the United States. I think it's fair to say. Megan Rapino has lived a pretty good life in the United States. Still, she talks about how America is really, really a bad place. And then she also suggested that she didn't want to meet with people. I mean, it was really amazing. She said she did not want to meet with people who disagree with her. So here she is giving a shout out to Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez because this is the kind of, this is what we're talking about here. I know you've been invited by, I think, uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I think uh, Nancy Pelosi. Shout out. Shout out, <laughs> Shout out AOC. <laughs> so does that mean, is that an invitation you're taking up? I think everyone is interested in going to Washington. I think we've always been interested in going to Washington. Um, this is such a special moment for us. Um, and to be able to, you know, sort of leverage this movement and talk about the things that we want to talk about and to celebrate like this with, um, the leaders of our country is an incredible moment. Okay, and then she continued by suggesting that she didn't want to meet with the Trump administration. So instead of everybody celebrating together or maybe her making her point to, you know, people who disagree, maybe she can make an affirmative case. Instead, she says she's not going to meet with the administration because she doesn't want to be co-opted or used by the administration. Yes, I am sure that that would have been the media coverage. Is Megan Rapino co-opted by President Trump? It wouldn't have been her going to the White House and then mouthing off to Trump about equal pay or something. That, which is exactly what would have happened, right? That would have been, honestly, if I were her media advisor, that's what I would tell her to do. Accept the invitation from the Trump White House, go there, and then make a comment directly to Trump's face about equal pay, right? That, that, that would be the smartest thing for her to do. She's not going to do that. Yeah, I don't, think, I don't think anyone on the team has any interest in lending the platform that we've worked so hard to, to build and um, the things that we fight for and the, the way that we live our life. I don't think that we want that to be co-opted or corrupted by this administration. And going to the White House would be, in, in your opinion, risk co-opting or corrupting your, your message. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, it's an opportunity uh, for this administration to sort of put us on display as their, um, you know, sort of guest for the day. And I don't think that that makes sense for, for us at all. OK, so quick correction. She went to a public high school, not a private high school. Doesn't change the general point. She's lived a pretty good life. She also said in this interview that she had an immense sense of pride and responsibility by kneeling during the national anthem. Nothing says pride and responsibility quite like kneeling during the national anthem of a country that has fought for your rights to be an incredibly famous person based on kicking a ball and having the proper leftist messaging. Also, Megan Rapino suggested that she would only meet with people who agree with her. So she said she would go to D.C. and have a substantive conversation with, quote, anyone who believes the same things we believe in. Yes, uh, wow, doing doing amazing work on behalf of her perspective by meeting with people who already agree with her. Really, really tremendous stuff. The best part of this Megan Rapino interview 
is that she was asked how fans can support the fight for equal pay. Her answer is just incredible. In the moments immediately following the final whistle, you get that USA, USA chant, but equal pay, equal pay along that same cadence. Yeah. I think fans want to know what they can do to support that fight. Fans can come to games. Um, obviously, the national team games will be a, a hot ticket, um, but we have nine teams in the NWSL. You can go to your league games. Um, you can support that way. You can, um, you know, buy players jerseys. You can lend your support in that way. You can tell your friends about it. You can become season ticket holders. Um, I think in terms of, of that, that's the, the easiest way for, for fans to get involved. Oh, you mean that fans can actually create the economic incentives for you to get paid more? You mean that capitalism can actually raise your pay? So what you're saying is that the reason you're not getting equal pay right now is because you're not making equal money for your league. And the best way for you to raise your pay would be for people to come and purchase tickets and memorabilia from your team which suggests that this isn't about sexism at all. This is about you just complaining about sexism for, for publicity. It's just this sort of stuff. And there, there's no follow-up there at all, of course. You know, and Rachel Maddow is never going to do the follow-up. That's who's interviewing her there. Rachel Maddow is never going to say to Megan Rapino. so you're saying capitalism can actually increase your pay. That, that's never going to be a thing that anyone on the left asks. Instead, we all have to pretend that this is, that this is all normal and that it's not divisive at all and that truly she's a hero to everyone. Absolute absolute silliness, absolute silliness and bad for the country, by the way, when even the stuff that we take a break with, you know, sporting is turned into this. It's pretty obnoxious. And we're not talking about 1968 in the middle of the civil rights movement with with U.S. sprinters on the U.S. national team at the Olympics, raising the black power fist because American politics are polarized around race in 68. We're not talking about that. We're talking about gay marriage is legal across the United States by Supreme Court diktat. We are talking about Megan Rapinoe is getting million-dollar contracts specifically because of her sexuality and because she is a very, very good soccer player. But let's not make any mistake. If she were a very good soccer player and she were not a very outspoken lesbian, she would be getting fewer contracts because she is seen as a political figure. She's, she's sort of Colin Kaepernick, but with actual talent at her sport. So it's all of this is obnoxious, but we, we're, we're, we're supposed to pretend that actually she's quite charming and wonderful, that it is not obnoxious to live in the most to live in the, in the best time for women, in the best time for lesbians, in the best time for women's soccer in the history of the world, and in the best country in the history of the world for any of those things. We're supposed to pretend that actually she's a victim and America's a terrible place so that she can make more money, presumably. Pretty gross. Okay, meanwhile, quick update on the, on the Jeffrey Epstein story. So the Jeffrey Epstein story, there's no real news that is coming out about it. People are mostly just fulminating over what's going to happen next. So is Bill Clinton the next shoe to drop? Or is Alex Acosta, the Secretary of Labor, the person who is going to feel the brunt? So a couple of details about the Alexander Acosta connection that are worthy of note here. Some information that people haven't really been given or people haven't talked about. And that is what exactly did the Labor Secretary do when he was the federal prosecutor down in Miami, when he was a U.S. attorney down in Miami with Jeffrey Epstein? So right now people are calling for Acosta to resign because there seemed to be a sweetheart deal in 2007 between Jeffrey Epstein and Alex Acosta's office of the U.S. attorney in Miami. And in that, in that plea deal, or in, that, that, in the deal, Epstein struck a bargain that included Epstein pleading guilty to two felony solicitation charges, agreeing to 18 months in prison, he eventually served 13, and registering as a sex offender. The deal also closed an ongoing FBI investigation and kept the case under seal, including by not notifying Epstein's accusers. So it's a really, really good deal for Jeffrey Epstein. And the person who is working 
at that office at the time was Alex Acosta, who is now the Secretary of Labor. Aaron Blake actually has a really good piece over at the Washington Post talking about what Acosta has said in response to all of this. So Acosta's handling of the case, according to Blake, has been called into question before, but in December, the Miami Herald published a blockbuster story revealing potential deferential treatment that Acosta and other prosecutors gave Epstein's lawyers, especially when it came to keeping the matter private. Acosta has rarely commented on the matter. When he has, he has declined to do so in detail, sometimes citing ongoing litigation and a fading memory. He did write a lengthy letter in 2011 and was asked about it in 2017. It came up in 2018 at a hearing of the House Appropriations Subcommittee. Acosta sent his 2011 letter to the Daily Beast. In that letter, he suggested that evidence that came out after the plea deal has led to some revisionist history. He said, some may feel the prosecution should have been tougher. Evidence has come to light since 2007 that may encourage that view. But he said it was the right decision at the time. He said, I supported that judgment then based on the state of the law as it then stood and evidence known at the time, I would support the judgment again. In, in the 2011 letter, Acosta, did, this is a detail that matters. He came out strongly against another controversial aspect of Epstein's treatment. Part of the Part of the deal was that Epstein would be able to leave jail during the day and then return at night. Acosta noted that state authorities were in charge of that, not federal authorities. He added that, quote, without doubt, the treatment he received while in state custody undermined the purpose of the jail sentence. In 2017, in testimony, he called that arrangement awful. Acosta also said that Epstein's lawyers, which included Alan Dershowitz and Ken Starr, were ruthless and willing to dig into the personal lives of prosecutors. He said it was a year-long assault. He said, I confess it's been difficult for him to be cordial with his opponents after this case. He said the aggressive tactics didn't influence his decisions one way or another. So that has been, Acosta has also said that there was a, a consensus or broadly held feeling within the prosecutor's office that the deal was about as good as they were going to get. There was at least one agent who told the Miami Herald that people were very disappointed with that particular deal. So I'm sure there will be more information to come out, but it is worthy of note that Acosta, for example, opposed what is obviously the most lenient part of the sentence, which is Acosta, which is Epstein being able to leave jail during the day and come back at night. Meanwhile, how deeply is Bill Clinton tied in? Well, there's a, a woman who is an expert on underage sex trafficking. Her name is Conchita Sarnoff. She's actually, she runs a foundation based on it. She was asked on Fox News about Bill Clinton. She says, uh, there's another shoe to drop here. I know from the pilot logs, and these are pilot logs that, you know, were written by different pilots and, and uh, at different times, that Clinton went, he was a guest of, Clint, of Epstein's 27 times. Almost every time that Clinton's name is on the pilot logs, there are underage girls. There are initials, and there are names of many, many girls on that private plane. So you have to ask yourself, why would anyone, not only a former president, fly on a plane 27 times? Okay, so there's still some other, I'm sure there'll be more news to drop here, so we'll keep an eye on all of that. Okay, time for some things I like, and then some things that I hate. So, things that I like today. So, as you know, I'm a devotee of baseball. I love baseball. This is one of the best baseball books I've ever read. It is an older book. It is from Daniel Okrent, who used to be the one of the editors over at the New York Times. He's written a couple of really good baseball books. The book is called Nine Innings, The Anatomy of a Baseball Game. And Okrent takes a 1981 baseball game between the St. Louis Cardinals and the Milwaukee Brewers, and he breaks it down out by out and pitch by pitch. It's really good. If you're a baseball fan, this stuff is just nirvana. It's a terrific, terrific book. I can't believe I hadn't heard of it before, um, but it is, it is certainly worth the read. So if you're a baseball fan or a sports fan generally, this is about as good as it gets for baseball books. Daniel Okrent's Nine Innings. Go check it out. 
right now. Uh, other things that I like. So as I mentioned yesterday, Mitch McConnell had been hit with an NBC News report that his great-great-grandfathers, two of them, were slave owners. Ooh, wow. Going back 150 years and finding something in the family tree that you don't like. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Mitch McConnell was asked about this yesterday, and this is about as good as it gets for Cocaine Mitch. So Cocaine Mitch really just snorting a line and then going full Scarface on the reporter in this particular in this particular exchange. Solid stuff from Mitch McConnell. Were you aware that your great-great-grandfathers were slave owners in Alabama uh, before the Civil War? And has that revelation caused you to change your position on reparations? You know, I find myself once again in the same position as President Obama. We both oppose reparations, and we both are the descendants of slaveholders. A hundred percent true. Mentioned it yesterday on the show. Barack Obama is descended on his mother's side from slave owners. By the way, so is Kamala Harris, apparently. Her dad has written about the fact that he is descended from slave owners as well. So if this is the way this is going to work, that if somebody in your family treated something wrong, then we are going to hold you to account. Good for Mitch McConnell for doing this. That is solid stuff. From You can always tell Mitch McConnell knows he's getting off a good line when that slight smile creases the turtle face and suddenly he is dropping, dropping hot fire on people. Pretty good stuff. Okay, time for some things that I hate. So there are a bunch of candidates who are just hanging around in this Democratic race who should not be hanging around in this Democratic race. One of those candidates is Beto O'Rourke. Now, remember that time when Beto was a serious candidate? Wasn't that funny? Beto O'Rourke, I I remember. It was really, really hilarious. Well, now Beto O'Rourke is polling. I mean, it's sad news for Beto, man. He is down all the way to 2.6% in the Real Clear Politics poll average, just beating out Cory Booker and Tulsi Gabbard. Ouch. This is a guy who had raised an enormous amount of money. When he jumped into the race, he was polling at nearly 10%. Back in January, when he he actually jumped in, he was all the way up in some of the polls to 9, 9 9.5%. He was running basically third in the polls. He, he'd, he'd gotten up to third in the polls by mid-April. It was going Biden, Sanders, and then O'Rourke. And he has just fallen off a cliff all the way down to 2%. And now he is relegated to doing his worst Noam Chomsky impersonation. So here's Beta taking a drag, brah, riding a skateboard, and then talking about how America's the worst. America's terrible and racist, even though you can be a totally unsuccessful congressperson who runs for Senate, marry into wealth have an incredibly privileged life, go to Columbia University, spend like a decade broing out with your bro friends and playing crap gigs around the country while dressed as a sheep. Then you can run for city council, Congress, Senate, lose, and then run for president. This country sucks, man. And if you're Beto, you know it sucks because you're talking to people who are minorities and you assume they also think it sucks. This country was founded on white supremacy and and every single institution and structure that we have in our country still reflects the legacy uh, of slavery and segregation and Jim Crow um, and suppression, even in our democracy. Um, yeah, I'm sure. It was, so it was founded on white supremacy. This is a this is a claim that you keep hearing from the left. And I've said before, I think this is a key divide in the American mind right now, that there are a lot of people, mostly on the right, but not entirely, who say that America was founded on good, true, eternal principles. We haven't always lived up to those principles, but the story of America is about us establishing grand and great principles in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, and then working to broaden out those principles to apply to the people to whom they always should have been applied to. But thanks to cultural standards of the time, they were not fully applied. In the line of thinking, 
of this, by the way, is Frederick Douglass, right, who, whose speech was quoted out of context by Colin Kaepernick, who knows as much about history as I do about blitz packages. And Colin Kaepernick tweeted, uh, tweeted and, and quoted Frederick Douglass way out of context. Frederick Douglass has a very famous speech when he talked about what the 4th of July meant to the black person in America. And he talked about how it didn't apply to the black person in America, but that's because the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were liberty documents that had not been properly read and had not been extended out as they should have been. Right? That is the, in that line of thinking are an enormous number of civil rights leaders. I, I would say that Martin Luther King was in this line. There's a reason why Martin Luther King correctly would use American principles as the greatest defense to his position. And that was effective. That was effective. That's one line of thinking. Then there's another line of thinking, and that's the thinking that basically all the grand and glorious principles of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, all the talk about natural rights and natural law, all of those things, it was merely a guise, a guise for power politics. And this line of thinking, there are two particular strains of, of relevance. One is the economic strain. So there's a group of people led in the early 20th century by a sociologist and historian named Charles Beard that suggested basically that the founders were a bunch of rich white dudes, and they were trying to enshrine their rich whiteness by creating these highfalutin ideals and then using the highfalutin ideals in order to push their actual agenda, which was to enshrine their own wealth. Right? That was the Charles Beard economic analysis of American history. It is not true. It is bad history. But nonetheless, it has become very popular to cite from people ranging from Woodrow Wilson in the early 20th century to Bernie Sanders in the now. And then there's the racial aspect, which says America was founded in white supremacy, that when Thomas Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal. He didn't mean black people, which is actually not really true. Thomas Jefferson did mean black people. He just didn't want to apply it to black people. This is why Thomas Jefferson is a really troubling character in American history and really symbolizes a lot of the conflicts of American history. Jefferson knew what he was writing, and then he proceeded to ignore what he was writing. He proceeded to live with the cognitive dissonance. Early on in Jefferson's career, he was pretty anti-slavery. And then as he became accustomed to having his own slaves, being a slaveholder, you know, by most evidence, siring children by Sally Hemings and all of this, as he did that, he, he accustomed himself to living with the cognitive dissonance of participating in an act of evil that he knew was actually deeply wrong. But to suggest that the founders universally were pro-slavery is untrue, to suggest the founders universally didn't think of black people as people is simply untrue. You can you can read founders, including John Adams, talking about all of this. Nonetheless, nonetheless, there is this claim made that basically what really undergirds the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence is white supremacy. Not that whiteness and white solidarity and degrading of other races was common to an enormous number of people at the time, including in Europe, where slavery was still legal at the time of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. Not only that but that that was actually at the root of all of this, that the real root rationale for the founding of the country was the preservation of white supremacy. Now, the difference is that we all live in sort of the cultural swamp of our times, right? A hundred years from now, people look back on us and look at us as primitives because that's how everybody has done things for all of human history. I think the area in which they're most likely to do that is with regard to the eating of animals. I think that over time, and I love eating meat, but I will admit that I think in 100 years, people are going to look back when we have created better meat substitutes when we've created you know, the ability to grow protein, animal protein without actually killing animals. They'll look back in 100 years and go, how could people slaughter animals like that? Right. In 100 years, people will look back at us. They'll certainly do this about abortion. Within 30 years, people are going to look back at us and say, wait, you people were arguing you should be able to kill a baby up until the point of birth? That's what you people were doing? I mean, there are those of us who are doing that now. 
But the question is whether that defines the society or whether that is just an aspect of the culture that is taken for granted as sort of the background noise of the culture. And does that provide the root of the society or is that just part of the background noise? So it is true that racism was part of the background noise of society in 1775. That was certainly a a huge part of society, undeniably. Was that what differentiated America from other places? No, what differentiated America from other places is the acknowledgement of those high ideals. When Beta O'Rourke says America was founded in white supremacy, what he means is that white supremacy lay at the root, right? It was the actual driving force behind the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States and the creation of the country. That it's a lie, it's not true. And recognizing the shadings of history, recognizing the truth of cultural mores being different in 1770 than they are in 2019, there is nothing more historically ignorant or frankly arrogant than suggesting that you are a better person than Thomas Jefferson was when you live in a completely different society than Thomas Jefferson did. I don't know what you would have done in 1776. You don't know what you would have done in 1776. You certainly wouldn't have the same values that you do now because you weren't brought up in the same values that you've been brought up with. So this sort of pandering, ridiculous, America is a deeply evil place because in the past people did bad things. And guess what? In 100 years, people are going to look back and think that you were pretty garbage too. So that's, that, that's the way this all works. This is not unique to, to Beto O'Rourke, of course. The radicalism of the Democratic Party uh, is, is continuing and ugly. Elizabeth Warren, of course, has gained a lot more support than Beto O'Rourke, mainly propped up by media attention. So the media have now given Elizabeth Warren the sort of attention that they used to give to Beto. They used to suggest that Beto was the golden, fair-haired child. Now it's Elizabeth Warren who is the golden, fair-haired grandmother. And she apparently has all the ideas and all the solutions. She is deeply radical on a variety of issues, not least including the Middle East. She has one advisor named Max Berger, who is supremely radical on this issue. He has sympathized in the past with terrorists, with Palestinian terrorists in the Gaza Strip. He has maligned the Israeli government as committing pogroms. He's really, really bad. And he's her top foreign policy advisor. Elizabeth Warren was asked yesterday at some event about whether she would commit to ending Israel's so-called occupation. Now, for those who don't know about the quote-unquote occupation, basically, Israel in 1967 was attacked by a variety of Arab nations, Jordan, Egypt, Syria. They, they, they all attacked Saudi Arabia. They all attacked. Right before they attacked, Israel launched a preemptive strike and blew up the Egyptian Air Force on the tarmac. In the Six-Day War, Israel ends up winning a huge swath of land, including Judea and Samaria, which is the historic heart of, of biblical Israel. They, include, they, they unify Jerusalem, the Israelis. They take the Gaza Strip. Now, when you launch a war and then you lose the territory, typically you don't get to claim that it is occupied territory. That's silly towns. But in any case, the UN creates a resolution, UN Resolution 242, which suggests that Israel has to give up occupied territories, right? Not the occupied territories, occupied territories. Now, the reason that it leaves out the word the is because some of those territories are given up and some of those areas are maintained. Israel no longer occupies, if that's a word you want to use, the Gaza Strip. Israel pulled out of the Gaza Strip in 2005. They, in fact, forcibly removed all Jews from Gush Katif in 2005. Since then, it has been completely run by the terrorist group Hamas. The Israelis have nothing to do with it, except they prevent the importation of weaponry and they prevent terrorists from crossing the border. And in the Palestinian areas in the so-called West Bank, Judea and Samaria, the vast majority of the Palestinian population lives under direct Palestinian governance. Again, Israel polices the borders to make sure that weapons aren't being shipped in. But the so-called occupation, Israeli soldiers are not wandering around in Ramallah. That is all run by the Palestinian Authority. Nonetheless, here's Elizabeth Warren suggesting that 
Israel is an occupying force despite all of that history and despite the truth, which is that the Palestinian Authority is a terrorist entity. Hamas is a terrorist entity. They steal the money of their citizens. They treat their citizens like garbage. And in the last elections, which were like 2005 for Hamas, 2006 for Hamas, and 2007 for the Palestinian Authority, those terrorist groups were reelected in a landslide. Here is Elizabeth Warren completely botching the history, but she's radically left, so she doesn't have to know history. The way you're fighting corruption, we'd really love it if you also um, push the Israeli government to end the occupation. Yes. yes. Excellent. So I'm here. Thank you. So nice to, nice to see you. Here, let me get Okay, those, those women, by the way, work for a group called If Not Now, which is an extraordinarily radical anti Israel group that basically considers all uh, Israel's very existence nearly Ill- illegitimate. If Not Now is a terrible, terrible group. Uh, they're, they're constantly stumping in favor of boycott, divestment, and sanctions from Israel, which is an anti Semitic policy. Uh, they've stumped in favor of, of Hamas's use of civilian shields in the Gaza Strip. They're really bad. There's Elizabeth Warren you know, pandering as hard as she possibly can. This is the new Democratic Party. This is the new Democratic Party. Shout out to one member of the Democratic Party, by the way, who actually said a true thing. Tulsi Gabbard, who is getting a little bit of attention, but probably not enough based on her pretty decent debate performance. Tulsi Gabbard said something true. I know it's always a shock to me. She said that Kamala Harris was pandering on, on busing, that it was all a ploy, that the federal busing ploy was a bunch of nonsense. This is true. Levying this, this accusation uh, that Joe Biden is racist when he's clearly not as a way to try to uh, smear him. And as you point to the article that I linked to in my tweet, really what she's saying is her position is the same one that she was criticizing Joe Biden for. So uh, this is just a political ploy, uh, and I think a very underhanded one just to try to get her self-attention, to move herself up in the polls. I think I think that we need to be above that, all of us. Okay, 100% true. Tulsi Gabbard for the win right there. That is 100% correct. By the way, it is it is Elizabeth Warren's, it is, is Kamala Harris's inability to go more than five minutes without switching a position or lying, or being overtly political that is leading to her not actually benefiting as much as she probably should be from her debate performance. Elizabeth Warren instead continues to run by most polls in second place. This is a four-person race at best, probably a three-person race. Probably Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden. All righty. Well, we'll be back here a little bit later today for two additional hours of content. So be there or be square over at dailywire.com. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Robert Sterling, directed by Mike Joyner, executive producer, Jeremy Boring, senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, and our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Hey, everyone, it's Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. Abused children, they only become news when the left can use them for political purposes. If they can attack Trump's attempts to secure the border or give the Catholic Church a bad name or take out a Republican candidate who did something wrong. But when it comes to the persistent, organized sexual abuse of underage girls and boys, the story always dies. Let's keep an eye on this Epstein case and see where it goes on The Andrew Claven Show. I'm Andrew Claven. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. 
Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 